Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones. I'm the Well-Seasoned Librarian. I'm your host. Today is Season 6, Episode 15. Uh, I'm very happy to be able to talk to all of you. I hope that many of you have had a really wonderful last few weeks. Um, here in the Bay Area, it's been a mixture of different kinds of uh, weather. We've been having warm weather mixed with showers. It's been really great for gardening. I've been putting a lot of flowers and vegetables into my garden. And uh, we had a really nice Easter uh, celebration uh, this last week with uh, Easter baskets for the kids and, uh, you know, food with deviled eggs and everything and colored eggs. So it was a good time. I know many of you uh, celebrate different types of uh, holidays. So um, for my friends who are celebrating or um, observing Ramadan during this period, I want to wish you a very warm Ramadan Mubarak or blessed Ramadan to you. And for my friends that are um, celebrating or observing Passover right now, I want to wish you a warm, happy Pesach to you right now as well. And I hope you're having a wonderful time being able to um, enjoy your times with your families. Um, I want to really um, say how happy I am to get a chance to interview local uh, legend Rima Sill. Uh, she has a book coming out today, Arabea, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Dysphoria. Um, this is a phenomenal cookbook, and we're going to talk about it a lot in the interview in a few minutes. But um, I just want to say this is just a great book. Um, Reem's restaurants here, uh, Reem's California and Oakland and San Francisco are just, you know, institutions here. Everybody loves them, and I love getting a chance to eat with them, be it takeout or getting to go to the restaurants themselves. The food is always just phenomenal and really, really worth it. Um, Asil is an award-winning Palestinian-Syrian speaker and chef based in Oakland who also engages in social justice locally. Asil has worked for over 20 years as a voice for the worker and nonprofits in the food industry. Her cookbook is both inventive, warm, inviting, and mouth-watering. I've made several of the dishes from this cookbook already. Uh, that's the joy of an advanced copy that I, I often have, and my family already demands regular items from it. So that was really nice. And uh, I had a wonderful time interviewing Asil. She's a fun person. I was really nervous to interview her, and she totally made me feel like I was at ease and I was interviewing an old friend. So I really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to her, and I think you're going to really enjoy it too. So that's Rima Sill is on the program today. Her book is Arabea, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Dysphoria. And you can get that from good uh, local bookstores like Omnivore Books, or you can get it online from any of the main uh, distributors that sell books online. With that being said, we're going to go to my conversation with Rima Sill. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast. I'm Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. I'm very happy to have on my podcast local chef, restaurant owner, and, and, and new cookbook <laughs> author, Rima Sill. Reem, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, I, I mentioned in the intro that your newest book, well, your new book, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora, is coming out this week as of this airing. That must be very thrilling for you. It's super exciting. It's like a little piece of me to the whole world. Uh, so it's exciting and scary. <laughs> how did it feel to get the, like the first copy they send you? When they, oh how did it feel to get goodness. that and hold it in your hands? It must be, must have been incredible. Oof. I mean, I've, uh, I have a four-year-old and I've 
had a child and it was felt like the end of a birth, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just... As everybody says, everybody's like, it's like having a kid. Yeah. Yeah. It's like having a child in your hands. It's like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's a very surreal feeling. Now I've been, you know, doing research for the interview and looking up, I love that your website says speaker, chef, community builder. I really like mm. that. And that's, that's, that's a heck of a, a title to have. Can you talk to me about these titles and how you feel about them? How do they conflict or complement each other? <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting when I sort of came on the food scene, um, I never expected to be a chef. Like this was sort of uh, the industry standard. And I've always been someone who's sort of pushes against status quo and, um, you know, although uh, it, it feels really great to be respected for my craft as a, as a creator, right, as an alchemist, as far as food goes, um, I, I never really lead with chef. Uh, and so I was trying to think about sort of what is it that I do that, that really sort of makes uh, the work that I do with the restaurant and uh, outside the restaurant really special. And it was really that I build community. Um, Reams, one of Reams's primary missions is to build that community across different cultures and experiences through this tool that we call Arab hospitality. <laughs> yeah. And I happened to do it through bread. And then, you know, speaker really just came on as people were telling, you know, I was asking, going around, uh, asking if you were to think of me, what we, what would you say? And um, time and time again said that I was a, a good speaker. So I sort of took all of those things and I'm not one of those things. I'm kind of the sum of all of those parts and, and more. Um, but yeah, just really sort of wanted to expand people's notions of what a chef does, right? Or what a leader does. Um, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to just make good food or you don't have to just be this dynamic person. It could be all or any of those things. So depending on the day you ask me, <laughs> I can yeah. be more of one of those three things. <laughs> yeah. If I'm geeking out about food, I'm in the chef mode. If I'm, you know, uh, excited to inspire people. I'm a keynote speaker. You know, it just depends on the day. Now, I loved in the book when you talked about, because this book isn't just, you know, it is a cookbook, obviously, but there's a lot of storytelling in it. You t and one of the things I really liked that really endeared me was um, when you're talking about your childhood growing up. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's funny when people ask me, where are you from? And, and I say, Boston, Massachusetts. People are like, where are you really from? <laughs> um, and I love kind of throwing that at people because I think that, um, uh, you know, I am a child of Palestinian and Syrian immigrants. Um, my parents sort of settled in a very little suburb outside of uh, Boston. And I grew up in New England and lived that kind of suburban New England life, <laughs> um, at, you know, as one of a handful of brown kids. <laughs> um, and, but it was this weird paradoxical reality of uh, an Arab culture that was really strong in the household, but also this sort of, I guess, Americana culture um, outside the household and navigating, navigating between those two worlds, I think, um, had its uh, hardships, uh, but also um, made me be able to maneuver in a in in the world uh, a lot more easily than maybe 
folks who grew up with only the people that they know, right, right. Um, culturally. So yeah, that was sort of my upbringing. I, I grew up in the East Coast until I was, you know, until I graduated college, so. Now, speaking of college, you went to the prestigious Tufts University in Boston. What were your careers goal then when you went there? Yeah, um, well, from a very young age, I mean, I think even from high school, I always had this affinity for social justice. I think that there was something, I don't know if it's just being the child of a Palestinian <laughs> that were inherently political, but I think that um, I was really lucky enough to have some amazing high school teachers that really kind of pushed uh, pushed me to like, see what was happening, uh, especially with civil rights here in the US. And so when I applied for Tufts, I was trying to figure out how do I um, situate myself as an Arab in diaspora that knows that there's injustice back uh, so far away from me uh, and connect it with the hardship, the, the struggles that are going on here in the US. And so I had this, I was very starry eyed. I'm like, I wanna be a diplomat and I wanna figure out, you know, uh, peace in the Middle East or whatever, you know, I was very like optimistic and, and, and wanted to do some of that international relations work. And uh, that's how I got into school. And uh, I wanted to understand why the rich were rich and poor were poor. Um, so I was an economics major as well. And um, the sobering reality of academia, uh, that sort of dream or that, um, you know, luster sort of faded very, very quickly as I sort of moved uh, through college. Yeah, it happens to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Academics or academia is a funny thing like that. Oh, yeah. Um, so how did you make it? How did you make the, the jump to cooking, professionally cooking? Yeah, um, well, it's funny when um, I tell people of my past, even from college, even all the way back to high school, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense that you're a chef now. And I'm like, what, really? Okay. <laughs> um, I did, you know, so food had always sort of been in the backdrop, uh, no matter what I was doing. Um, when I, uh, so I moved out West uh, in the early 2000s, uh, right around the time that the US invaded Iraq. And I got into a lot of anti-war activism and, you know, figured out in the Bay Area, you could be paid to organize <laughs> and, and do that activism. And so um, really fell deep into the professional organizing world. And I did that for about 10 years. I did everything from, you know, working with uh, organizations on the ground, uh, trying to give voice to um, their residents around, things like affordable housing and living wages um, to actually uh, organizing underground in people's workplaces to fight for a union. And so I had this whole gamut of experience, but in all of that, um, as many people who have been in the organizing field would tell you, uh, there were limitations uh, in that sort of uh, professional setting. And I got really jaded. I was overworked, really tired, and didn't feel like the the work that I was doing with workers or um, residents was really transformative work. Right. Um, it just felt like we were jumping from campaign to campaign and we're always just turning out for things. And I, at some point was like, what are we fighting for? <laughs> right. um, and so food had always sort of been the, like when I was burnt out 
sort of in the backdrop. And so I was sort of an amateur baker and, and cook. And um, it wasn't until 2010, I had hit a really bad burnout phase in my career um, that I actually took a trip to the Arab world uh, with my father, who at that point, we hadn't really been close. Um, so it was sort of this transformative trip uh, to go to the homeland of my father um, as an adult. And in that trip, I discovered the food ways of my people that I had always taken for granted as a child of you know, immigrants here in the US. Uh, I just discovered the expansiveness of our food, food, you know, from the bread um, to the dips, to the salads, to the, you know, just, it was just such a visceral experience. And I think I really just fell in love with my roots. I don't know, like I felt connected to my roots in a way that I hadn't in a very, very long time. And it was when I walked into this, bakery in, in Beirut where uh, I just I felt the most alive I'd ever felt uh, in a very long time and I really wanted to like harness and hold that feeling and put it in a bottle and bring it back to the bay with me and so you know I got into food obviously I love food and that was the thing that I did but I got into it because of that feeling that I wanted to recreate that sort of genuine feeling of that of hospitality I think that uh um, I felt in the Arab world that had I had longed for it and I felt like other people maybe are longing for that, that sense of belonging, that sense of refuge. Um, and I thought, oh, what better way to do that than to create this Arab street corner bakery vibe that I felt, you know, could be a way to educate people about my culture, but also to give back to my community in a way that I hadn't been able to do when I was organizing. So yeah, I kind of a backhanded way into food in the sense that food was the means to the end of community building. Like I got into it for, to create something that would bring community together. Um, and I came back and I quit my job and I, my parents were really worried about me. They were already worried about me. They didn't know what I was doing for profession organizing and now I was telling them after uh, that I wanted to become a baker and I did it I enrolled myself in culinary school and I sort of the rest was history that's always the last thing a parent wants to hear they always want to hear I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or something in like tech or finance but they never <laughs> want to hear baker actor anything like yes. that. yes no, definitely not. They were like, what is she doing? She must be really confused. And so they thought it was a phase and, you know, they supported me. And, you know, obviously now they're like, ah, we get what she was trying to do. But I think back then they were. <laughs> She's going through a baker phase right now. Just have to yeah. be patient. Yes. Let <laughs> her, let her do her thing. She'll make her scones and then she'll get over it. So you got to work for the famous local Arizmendi bakery. What was that like working there? Oh, it was definitely a uh, transformative. I think that, um, you know, one being able to work at a bakery that is so prestigious and makes amazing food is, is, you know, a privilege in and of itself, yeah. but to actually get to, for your first formative baking job to be a place where you learn how to be an owner as well, yeah. um, was even 
more amazing. Um, and so I remember my interview for Arizmendi, I just, uh, I wasn't qualified at that time. I think I had like six months of experience and it was a very competitive um, place to work. I think it was like three candidates out of the hundred um, applications they received. And I was like, you have, you have to hire me. Like I did not give them a choice. Um, and I told them about my dreams and sort of my love for um, changing the world, right? Uh, the way that we look at the world and the way that we act in the world and this could be the place. And um, yeah, I learned very quickly how to live that Baker life, waking up at four in the morning, um, you know, having crazy nightmare dreams where I was going to burn all the scones, which actually I've done before. Oh no. <laughs> it's not yeah. that bad. <laughs> I can see that. I can see having a nightmare you know? about that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I learned everything and, and, and not just to learn sort of traditional, um, techniques of baking. I think, uh, to have a glimpse of what reams could be, um, yeah. Yeah. at that point I'd imagine what, what is an everyday stop for people part being part of their routine, knowing like that, you know, Joe is waiting at seven o'clock in the morning and he's going to come in and like clockwork, he's going to get his cheese roll and his Americano. Like there's just something really endearing about that. Like you're part of someone's life, you know, you can make or break their day. So I really love that. And then you know, just being an owner, you have a lot more creative say in how your bakery is run. And that was a place where I, I think they still have the Zatar pizza on their menu. Like that yep. was a place that I could play with the flavors that I wanted to play with and take risks. And so, yeah, it was needless to say a very, very um, formative experience for me. Now, the way they run the Arizmendi is a little different than normal bakers bakeries, isn't it? So like, did that inform with your working in labor, with labor issues? Because most people, when they get a, a restaurant or a bakery, they may know cooking and stuff, but they don't know organizational work or like how to run anything or like structure. Mm -hmm. So does this help you kind of like figure out how, how you wanted to go and do yours? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had sort of an agenda. I was like, I wanted to learn how to be a business owner and learn these things. Um, but I think even more so than that, you know, I mean, I learned really valuable things like how to run a payroll and, um, you know, like the technical pieces of a job that's beyond just the, the, the baking. Um, but I learned how to work with people and what works and what doesn't and what I didn't want to do and what I didn't want to create and recreate, um, sort of being able to grapple uh, an organization yeah. <laughs> with 17 other people. It was like a really, uh, it was a crash course on people management, right? Um, yeah. And And I would say like, you know, cooperatives are not a utopia. Um, they are by far more work. Yeah. Um, but there's something really amazing about that uh, democratic process. Uh, one, because it alleviates one person from having to have the burden, you know, of yeah. uh, of this job because it's not an easy job to work in food. So no. um, that was something that I look back on and I was like, oh yeah. I mean, as frustrating as sometimes it was to have to make decisions. <laughs> uh and process decisions with uh so many other people it made sense it was you know the the bakery i mean as you could see it's one of the more most successful bakeries so 
It's stressful though. I mean, I don't think people really appreciate how hard it is to work in kitchens. And I think bakeries are some of the hardest places to work Absolutely. and managing other people. God, I, it's just, I don't know. Especially it's, when you haven't had sleep and you're yeah. <laughs> up at four in the morning and yeah, <laughs> it's like, just let me be. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, you know, on the flip side of that, uh, there's like a camaraderie, uh, in the hard work. So yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, you opened Reams, California, both in Oakland's Fruitvale and then in San Francisco. You also have opened an Arab fine dining concept, uh, Di- Diafa? Diafa, yeah. Diafa, sorry, in Oakland also. Can you tell me about your inspiration for these places? Yeah. Really the inspiration at the root of it, um, Diafa actually is the Arabic word for hospitality. Oh, okay, nice. Um, yeah. And, um, I was, you know, when I was thinking about reams, I'm like, what did I want people to experience? And then it sort of rooted down to what do I want people to feel, uh, when they walked into my spaces and time and time again, the thing that kept coming up for me was warmth. And so, um, the inspiration is really about sort of the warmth of Arab hospitality, but also of fresh made food, right? Like the, I think that um, Arab cuisine has been sort of didacted to uh, a very, uh, you know, simplistic uh, view of, of what our food is. It's been, you know, falafel, shawarma, hummus. Yeah. Um, and it's just more than that. And, you know, Arab cuisine is it's seasonal, uh, it's creative, it evolves, uh, it, uh, it, it's flexible, right? It can be interpreted. And I really wanted to celebrate place um, and being in California where we have this just bounty of um, not only vegetation ingredients, but of um, farmers uh, with skill who've worked off the land. I wanted to honor all those things. So I think the inspiration behind my place is really uh, to invite people into that ecosystem, to imagine a world in which all people can come as they are um, and feel free and liberated um, and and warm and find a sense of belonging. I think that that is what Arabs have been able to do in spaces, particularly food spaces. It's what's allowed them to survive in the desert. (laughs) Yeah. Um, for many, many, many generations, it's, you know, survive war and famine and all these things. It's like, you know, that hospitality, that sort of being able to feed people and use food as a way to connect to people. So that's the inspiration. And then obviously bread um, being the lifeline of, yeah. of, of our history to tell that story. I mean, you know, when you break bread, it's a transcendent thing most cultures have some form um, of bread. So I felt like yeah. it was the most accessible way uh, to invite people who didn't know anything about Arabs into these spaces. This episode of the Well-Seasoned Librarian podcast is sponsored by the Culinary Historians of Northern California, a Bay Area educational group dedicated to the study of food, drink, and culture in human history. To learn more about this organization and their work, please visit the website at www.chnorcal.org.
Now, I know that you probably answered this question a million times, but I, I just have to ask it because it's so topical. It must have been tough running restaurants during a pandemic. I mean, this pandemic has been, has touched every aspect of every business, but I know it's been very, very hard on restaurants. What has it been like for you these past few years? Oh, you know, I want to say it's been, it, it, it's two sides of the coin, right? Um, you know, nobody is going to tell you that the pandemic wasn't uh, tough when it hit um, back in March of 2020, when, you know, all of a sudden I was responsible for 30 something people's lives. And, um, you know, as a small business with no investors, you know, we didn't have any cash in the bank. And yeah. I thought life was over as I knew it, you know, it's like, it was that dramatic. Um, but on the flip side of the, uh, I had no control, you know, there's like just something about like, um, submitting, um, to the forces that be and, you know, figuring out what the silver lining of all of this was at that time. Um, you know, I had the fine dining restaurant. I had the, you know, I had Reams uh, in Oakland. I was, I just was about to or did open another restaurant. I was, and I had a three-year-old at the, or two-year-old at the time, and I was just on overdrive. You know, oh wow, and I didn't know you had media kids really yeah. throw a wrench in the works. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, I was just so tired. <laughs> <laughs> as an entrepreneur, as a, um, as a restaurateur who really has a certain, um, you know, uh, rigor to the way that I run my businesses, because I want them to be thriving places, sometimes to the detriment of myself. And so I've um, heard about a lot of yeah, restaurant owners said that that's very common. Very, very common. Yeah, you're the last person to get taken care of in this mix. Yeah. And yet the whole world was, you know, thinking that I'm so successful and I didn't feel successful at all. And so I had to really reevaluate what is success because at that time I had won all these awards and I'm like, these awards don't pay the bills. <laughs> they didn't bring more people yeah. to my restaurant per se, you know, um, this system is rigged, you know, and it's not really designed for particularly um, marginalized communities to really succeed. So in a way, the pandemic sort of made me question everything. I think they say like in grief, you find clarity. And for me, that was very, very true. It's like I laid in my bed for three days and I had to really kind of reassess what I wanted to do. And um, slowing down was the best thing that I could have done for, for everyone, taking my time, being vulnerable. Um, so I think, you know, to answer the question of sort of what was it like, I think it was liberating in a way um, for me to recalibrate my businesses in a way that I felt like I was stuck on a gerbil wheel uh, before the pandemic hit. So, I mean, not to say that I wouldn't have eventually done that, but I think, um, I think that catalyst was really a good wake up call for me and, and for a lot of my peers in the industry to, to be like, you know, can we be living these lives of working 80 hour weeks and, you know, really running our staff into the ground and, you know, like, is it worth it? Is it worth that customer? Is it worth, you know, being open seven days a week? So yeah, I really reassessed and reprioritized a lot of things. 
I've often felt that we don't do enough to kind of have safeguards for small businesses, especially restaurants and places that make food like bakeries. I mean, have you ever, like, I know that like Oakland and the East Bay, the city, I've been to city council meetings where they've talked about like funds for helping small businesses and allocating money. Do you feel like they could do more, especially for like restaurants and food? Cause like these, you, you touched on something earlier, like people depend on these, this guy is going to go at 10 o'clock and get his muffin. He does this every day. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an ingrained thing. People miss bakeries. When a bakery closes, it messes up people's lives. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think we could do more to kind of put some economic infrastructure for, for restaurants and, and bakeries in place so that we can make sure that when these things happen and they'll happen again, we know they will. That, that there could be like kind of fallbacks for these businesses. Do you think there should be something like that in place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, restaurants and food spaces are cornerstones of communities all across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as a result of the pandemic, you know, 16% of those restaurants are now gone. Yeah. And those were like cornerstones for, they were the third space, especially for communities who have nowhere else to go. Um, that's, uh, so it's, it's almost like a civic duty, (laughs) uh, you know, to, to make sure that those, um, you know, not only are they cornerstones, like places for people to uh, not converge or congregate, um, they're economic engines, right. For communities, there's especially the ones that are generational, that are mom and pops, um, especially restaurants like mine who have sort of um, really taken it upon ourselves with a new model, right? That really centers workers and provides pathways for their leadership. Um, it's so, so important for cities and even rural areas to um, be partnering and wrapping around so that those businesses can thrive. And so the workers can thrive, you know, and that makes the community a much stronger community and ecosystem around them. Um, I think that restaurants are also integral part of the food system, right? They're the ones that source from the farmers and the vendors. And so if you lose those restaurants, you lose other parts of that food system. Um, so absolutely. And, you know, we've advocated for that from day one, um, and, and especially not in just a pandemic, but, you know, it's going to be a long time before we recover. And, I think in oh, order yeah. to do this, we need to have, you know, these public-private partnerships uh, that are vision-aligned, right? That are about not making a profit off the backs of people, but actually lifting up communities. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we just lost Brown Sugar Kitchen, and that's, you know, that's a hole that can't be filled, really. And I just have to wonder, you know, I would ask city council, the city government, could could something have been done to prevent this? Maybe we could have, you know, done better. And I think that we 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 were failing here. Yeah, the develop development real estate driving up <laughs> all the costs definitely oh, yeah. has its yeah. Now, we, I want to talk about your new book, uh, Arabia Recipes from the Life in an Arab as an, of an Arab in Diaspora. Um, so this, as of this, uh, airing, it's going to be coming out this week. So, uh, how does it feel to have this coming out? I mean, this must be really thrilling for you. Uh, it's like so amazing to be able to, um, put a piece of yourself yeah. <laughs> 
in the and you world. did and you did you did yeah it was a it was a big undertaking i'm really excited to share my story with the world um at first i wanted to write a memoir when i was everybody kept asking me please write a cookbook and i was like well i want to tell my story and so trying to figure out how to both create this beautiful cookbook that um, would allow folks to experience my food in their homes but also um you know tell a story that might inspire people see a little bit of themselves in it um and i think this book was really a happy medium of that it was very cathartic to write it in the middle of a pandemic um and uh i'm just so excited to share it with the world that i mean when you said there's a lot of you in it you're not kidding because like this there's a lot of your stories in there and it's just got such a beautiful um there's such beautiful photos and pictures of everybody in there and I really th thought it was a very special book and I really really enjoyed reading it from cover to cover because there's so much really great stuff in there one of the things I like that you touched on is that and this was highlighted by a conversation I had yesterday I was talking to a cook who has a book who talks about Mexican food and authentic Mexican cuisine she said often she hates how things get boiled down to like a taco or, mm -hmm. or a tostada and it's like and her she's like my, my my cooking is so much more complex than that you really highlight this in your book like you said you know falafel or shawarma and then like your book really shows a diversity there's so much diversity in here there's a lot of really amazing seafood dishes there's all kinds of soups and stews the dessert section's incredible the bread section's incredible there's a wonderful section of drinks at the mm -hmm. end and then throughout this there's all these stories and really great photographs well how did you conceptualize this when you first thought mm -hmm. of it you know you said you want to do biography but you want to do the cookbook how did it look in your head did, yeah. did, did the end product look like what you were dreaming of you know it it, it was very iterative process uh at first i was like i don't care what order these foods go they're just gonna sort of line up with my story. <laughs> um, I had this sort of linear story in my head and then I started to, you know, and then we kind of played around. We were like, anybody who buys a cookbook is wanna ha have the dessert section at the end and, you know, um, the pantry section in the beginning. And so, you know, I had to really think about sort of if I were to tell the story in that sort of uh, uh, order, what are the themes, right? How can I break up my life in this? You know, I don't think it's, you know, my life and the story is not linear. And you can see, I go back and forth between time in these essays. Um, but, you know, the hospitality piece in the pantry was my origin story. And so if you wanna know about me, you need to know about my grandparents and sort of the struggles they went through. And so it really starts with my grandmother. Um, you know, very much of the work that I'm doing is carrying her, her legacy, right, as who was the matriarch of the family. Um, and then it sort of jumps into the present. And now we're at the bakery, but that was sort of, I felt like the apex or the sort of, you know, big chunk of the book was the bread um, and the pastry, because that is sort of how I came to express myself and my food ways. And um and then you sort of go back <laughs> and you're like okay how did we get here and then it goes back into my childhood and the arab table um and really sort of describing you know just breaking some of those stereotypes of what it is to be arab in america i think that the arab experience in america 
as diverse as our food is, our experiences are very diverse. And so I, I wanted to really pay homage to my mother as someone who actually, in fact, didn't cook that much, but cooked beautifully and from the heart, you know, and sort of, you know, my grappling with food, right, and my relationship to cooking. And then you, from, from that, it kind of goes linearly to like what led me to California. Uh, that's my favorite chapter. It's, you know, an Arab finds her vegetable roots. <laughs> and it really is a story about how I came to learn about food in California. And the more that I learned about Californian cuisine and methodology and ingredients, the more I learned about my ancestry and how they did it. And there's just something really healing about that. Um, and then, you know, the book actually ends, you know, there's an epilogue that kind of talks about some of the more present stuff, but the book actually ends really at the um, beginning of my opening of my restaurant. And so there's just so much in there. Um, and so much, so many stories to be told. And I really wanted to make sure that every recipe also had a story. Um, but I also didn't want it to be all about me. It was, you know, I wanted uh, in sort of Reem's fashion, wanted to make sure that my book highlights the many influences that come into my cuisine. I can't claim all of my cuisine to be even my own creations. A lot of them are inspirations from growing up, you know, uh, in, <laughs> you know, sub suburban Boston to coming to Oakland, which has been my home for all, almost 20 years, where I've lived with, you know, people from all wakes of life. I've cooked in kitchens with people from all wakes of life. And all of that is reflected in my cuisine. It doesn't make it any less Arab. So, you know, while the sort of traditional um, bases of a lot of those dishes are, are in the recipes, I really, it's an expression of self, you know, and, and I really sort of have fun with it. And yeah, I, I think that um, people will really appreciate that because they'll kind of, you know, be less intimidated by it, let's just say. And, and some of the recipes are harder than others. You know, I got to kind of show some of the more sophisticated um, approaches and some are really, really simple and delicious. So there's a little bit of something for everybody. You really take great pains in this book, I found, to really explain things to people that may not be familiar with some of the foods and some of the things. And one of the things I really loved as a librarian, I loved uh, your spice index on page 20. <laughs> I thought I thought she's got some librarian in her, I think, because like <laughs> this is a great because I, I it was such a thing like I'm like, why aren't other people putting these in this their cookbook? This yeah. is, should be an industry standard. I loved <laughs> loved loved that spice index it's really beautiful and Thank the bread you. section you had a lot of stuff like as somebody who bakes bread and bakes a lot of bread and i have a lot of cookbooks on bread some of them are like here's the recipe here's like the weights and measures blah 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 but nobody's really showing and i'm like okay i i, I get that the temperature is supposed to be this and um, these time periods and weights but there's no real explanation of how I'm supposed to do this. And it's frustrating. <laughs> the bread nerd came yeah. out in me in that section, right? Absolutely. No. And I'm so <laughs> thankful because it's like, okay, I get, I can see, conceptualize this in my mind now that I've read what you've written. I'm like, I feel like I can do this. Whereas before it's like, well, here's a bread that you'll never make. And it's like, oh, thanks. It's like, <laughs> mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. We did a, I, I think that, um, you know, just as my experience as a cookbook reader and, you know, I'm, uh, I think that 
probably I'm a little bit more advanced than the average bread baker, but it's always sort of frustrating because I have to assert the, the bread recipes and, and your typical cookbook where like the bread is just one or two recipes of the whole book. Um, they don't really explain much or all the nuances. And then I have to sort of cross-reference with a more wonky, like less accessible bread book. And I just wanted to converge the two with the happy medium. That yeah. if somebody really did want to figure this out, you know, because those bread, the simplistic bread recipes, they never really come out that way. Like I've taught a lot of bread workshops and, and that is, over, you know, time and time again, what I'm told that like, people bake from these cookbooks, but they never turn out how they're supposed to be. So I really wanted people to, you know, get the product that they're supposed to get. Um, So try to be as detailed as possible, but it is, it's like this happy medium where you don't want to scare people away. So I had this sort of separate, you know, very organized bread section that you can flip back to if you really wanted to figure it out. But you make, you make PETA seem doable. I've, I've uh, messed up pita a couple times and made bad pita, and it's just, it's not a good thing. Nobody wants it. Why don't you say that? <laughs> and uh, this, you know, this lovely sausage bread, the Zatara flatbread, Manouche, and like there's so many really good things in here that really are make, they're very Moorish. My, I said that my wife really liked the sesame crusted bread pouches, and I'll be making those for quite a while now. So, uh, yeah. The- the original bagel, I say. <laughs> yeah, it's like a better bagel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I really there like. Is, uh, you'd yeah. appreciate that as a librarian. I I feel like there's uh, Reem Kassis, who's a, another cookbook writer. She's Palestinian. Yeah. Uh, made the claim that um, the karak, which is the Arabic word for that bread, um, sort of made its way through Sicily up to Poland and was the predecessor of the <laughs> bagel. So. <laughs> not I like it it's not far-fetched no no i and i also i'm a fan of uh, kibbe i really like kibbe mm-hmm. and uh there's a beautiful recipe i think this the chicken stuffed with spiced rice mm-hmm. i could see anybody already any family like person who cooks for their family is like i'm gonna be making that i, yep. I find it was really you seem to like i felt like as a person who cooks for my family you kind of made this cookbook for me because you have a lot of things like mm-hmm. with the kibbe, you're like, you could freeze these. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I love that. And you were like saying like with the, with the uh, sesame crusted bread, like you're like, you could freeze that. And you have a lot of tips like that in there. And I feel like you're talking to the people who are actually doing the cooking, mm-hmm. which I really liked. It wasn't like mm-hmm. high, high and putting on airs and everything. It was like, you were given some re- de- real detail in here. Was that mm-hmm. kind of intentional in your writing? Yeah, I mean, it's the way that I talked and the way that I teach, I think that I really sort of, when someone wants to engage with me, I want to make sure that they really get what they need (laughs) from that engagement. I don't know. It's the teacher in me, I guess. Um, I really want to make sure that they understand. I have read so many cookbooks where I'm like, this person didn't really care. (laughs) They just like, you know, it just feels uh, just a little bit half done. And I really wanted to make sure that people genuinely knew, like knew that I genuinely cared and wanted to make sure that they got this right. Because I care so deeply about the food and the hospitality portion of it. And most people are gonna get this because they wanna cook for their family or cook for their friends. And I want them to be the star of the show, you know? Um, And I just think it's like, it's nice to have these little tidbits where they can 
come back and just read the blocks or, or read the squares, the little history facts or the fun facts and things like that. And it makes that dish even more interesting, right? Like a stuffed chicken, it was it has a really beautiful picture and, and whatnot. Um, but you know, to read the head note or to read the tip, it it just kind of makes that dish all the more special. So yeah, I think that um, that was really, really intentional. And I wanted to sort of, I think hopefully there, there, there's a good balance of the lighthearted, the serious, you know, um, you know, food. Uh, I've never shied away from saying that food is political. Um, oh, yeah. and, and certainly my food is political. And, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, um, it's a window into a world to understand better um, what is happening, right? The food really explains a lot. Uh, so yeah, I tried to kind of do that in the most accessible way possible. But you also, I mean, you didn't just talk about food too. You also talked about um, Arabic hospitality and how important that was to the cooking. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, this book, uh, and I say it in the intro is like, find your own rhythm in the dance of Arab hospitality. That's really what this is all about. Um, yes, you're going to make delicious food and, you know, um, make these beautiful dishes, but it's the love through which you serve these dishes that really matters, right? Um, that at the end of the day, I want you uh, to, to make this food to engage with this beautiful culture um, and, and use it to engage with your community. Um, so I think that hospitality for, for me is a way that I found um, my sense in the world, right? My belonging, my humanity. Um, and I want other people to feel that way too, especially right now in the pen, you know, two, three years being isolated. How cool is it to have a cookbook where you can really um, make so many things for guests, right? Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And there's a lot of abundance in this book, right? Um, yes, there are, there are dishes that serve four to six people or a family, but there are dishes that, you know, like the makluba dish, that's the one on the front, are these like really celebratory festive dishes that, you know, you're, you're sharing with a lot of people. And that sort of communal act um, is at the center of, of Arab hospitality, right? It's like I said, what's made us not just survive, but thrive um, yeah. through the worst of it, right? And, you know, there have been a lot of struggles being both uh, back in the homeland and in diaspora. And so there's not a shortage of uh, opportunities to really sort of uh, share our resilience. I um, I, I just, I love so much of this cookbook. I really can't recommend it to the audience enough. And I just, I think it's going to be the one thing that gets me to get my family to eat lamb finally. Cause like ah! I've been trying to find ways to get my family to eat lamb. And finally, I showed my wife some of the recipes. She's like, all right, I'll eat this. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can finally get you guys to eat lamb. You can mix for... it a little bit. That's what yeah. the Arabs, you know, there's a lot of like, mix it if it's too, don't let her read the, the head note of the slow cooked lamb shoulder though. <laughs> no, I'll... no, she doesn't, she, doesn't... she won't read that. About She's the day like... that my dad brought a whole lamb for my mother. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget that. But um, yeah, no, I mean, lamb for us is a very festive, um, you know, 
festive protein. And that's the other thing is like, there's just so much to celebrate. I mean, there's a whole section. The desserts are not just desserts. No. They're celebratory desserts. They're yeah. desserts we have on special occasions. And believe me, we find excuses to have special occasions for pretty much everything. Um, even for a child losing their tooth, you know? Um, so I think it's also just like finding any occasion to celebrate. Um, I think that that's something that people don't, uh, people misconceive about Arabs. Um, it's all about our hardships, right? And I didn't want this. I want the, I wanted this story to be about our joy, you yeah. know, and very much, uh, the joy of being connected to one another, being connected to our communities. And as you can see, you know, despite sort of, and, and the memoir will show all the hardships that I went with, uh, went through with my family, right? A lot of, our, a lot of folks are implicated in this book, yeah. um, but at the end of the day, we were all together, right? Yeah. Um, and I wanted to share, show that, show that in the book um, through the, the visuals and the photos. I, 10 Speed Press did an amazing job. Did you look to them specifically to do your book because of they're so they're known for really great cookbooks? Oh yeah. I mean, I wanted, I wanted a vibrant cookbook. Uh, if anybody is familiar with my restaurants, uh, we are not cliche. No. <laughs> um, we, I, you know, I steer away from anything that's considered authentic or traditional our colors are splashy with bright hues of pink and green and turquoise. And it's very much California. Um, yeah. And I wanted a publisher that really understood the California vibe because this is an homage to California as much as it is um, to my Arab heritage. Uh, and so I think that they really got it. And then the other thing about this book is that it was pretty much an all women team that worked on this book and oh yeah yeah i, I don't know that just sort of that feminine spirit and um yeah i think all of that those vibes were reflected um in in the food photography and i wanted it to just be like fun you know and um not too you know cookie yeah. cutter so i want to ask what's next for you what is next? Um, I am getting ready to go on the road and uh, be able to spread the gospel of Arabia nice. um, to as nice. many people as I can. I think Very that cool. everybody should have this book. They should. Um, I, I it agree. Really, really. Uh, yeah, it's I think it's a way to know me if you ever meet me. <laughs> uh, but I think that I don't think that my story necessarily is unique. And so I hope that anyone who reads this might also see a little piece of themselves in, in, in this and in, in some of the stories um, because they are, you know, this is the human experience. This is what we go through, particularly people who find their way to food. Um, I am, um, you know, Reams is going through a really, uh, exciting transition um, to worker ownership. We're nice. preparing for a new flagship bakery soon. Oh, uh, yeah, we, we're, you know, we're sort of gearing up to figure out sort of what is the next step for Reams. Um, we're now in people's homes. Um, we have our products in local supermarkets like Berkeley Bowl and yep. Pyrite. Um, 
And so, yeah, I'm just really excited to see that grow and to see my employees really sort of take ownership over it. Um, what else? We are gearing up for another partnership with Burlap and Barrel. Um, they're oh, a spice wow. company. Um, and actually, a sort of shameless plug, uh, there are sort of three integral spice recipes in this cookbook. Yes. And um, if you don't have time to make those spices, we created those spice mixes with Burlap and Barrel. So Nice. Um, if you wanted to get those and sort of <laughs> shortcut your way. Um, but we're doing uh, some really fun uh, new additions to the that's, um, that spice collection, including a falafel mix that I'm really, Ooh. really excited about. So I like yeah, that. just really, really exciting things coming um, down the line. And yeah, I just really am so, so uh, thankful and grateful for the platform that I've been afforded to be able to really share Arab culture with the world <laughs> and with the U.S. in particular uh, in a way that um, uh, I feel truly like I can express myself to my fullest. And um, as many folks that come from uh, immigrant backgrounds, that hasn't necessarily been the case for a lot of us, right? Dealing with uh, racism and xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment. So um, I feel like this book was the first time I could really sort of tell my story like it is and not have someone else tell my story for me. Um, yeah. And yeah, I feel very privileged to be able to, you know, share that with the world, but also give some visibility for other Arab women, other Arabs in diaspora, other, you know, other folks who are adjacent um, to this culture. So yeah, excited for y'all to have it in your hands and cook from it and be connected through it. I, I wholeheartedly back that sentiment. I think everybody should, that's listening to this should get a copy and I think it's going to do very well. I, Thank I see you. big things from this. Thank you Reema, so I want to thank you for being on the program. I've really enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you and I'm really enthusiastic about this uh, book coming out. So thank you for being on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. That was my conversation with local restaurateur Rima Sill. Her book, Arabea, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora, is out today at All Better Bookstores. On Friday, we're talking with Micah Silva, dietitian, chef, food writer, and blogger, and more. I'd have a time talking with Micah, and I know you'll love hearing what we had to say on Friday. If you follow my podcast and like my work, you can buy me a cup of coffee and share your thoughts at the link in the bio. You can help us promote this podcast if you share this episode with a friend or share on social media with the hashtag at Wellbrarian. Follow the Well Seasoned Librarian podcast on Spotify, Instagram, and Stitcher and get notified when new episodes are released. You can subscribe to the podcast newsletter and get updates from my articles and more by going to the Substack link in the bio. Our podcast theme song, Talk About Love, is sung by the band Kitty Cat Fan Club. Their label, Asian Man Records, is given permission for its use. You can check them out and other bands as well by going to the link asianmanrecords.com. Until we talk again on Friday... I hope you have a wonderful and very prosperous and delicious week. I've been getting better, better than you.